Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 24th of January, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today by video link, we have Vanessa Bealey and Charles Mallet. Uh, we're going to get uh, started with the issue of war and the drumming of for war. So uh, let's begin. We're here with uh, uh, the Ministry of Defence uh, pushing this out uh, yesterday evening. Uh, the UK will support Ukraine for as long as it takes, and that's why we're raising our military aid to £2.5 billion pounds this year. Uh, at today's meeting of the 50-nation-strong Ukraine Defence Contact Group, Defence Secretary Grant Shapps urged others to join the UK in increasing their aid. Well, one country which will not be increasing its aid to Ukraine is Slovakia, because they've spent it all. Uh, it's all gone. Uh, uh, we'll be coming on to that in a little bit more detail in a second. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, of course, all the news headlines this morning in the mainstream press uh, around the word conscription. Uh, and this event is taking place uh, uh, at the moment, actually, an International Armoured Vehicles Conference run by Defence IQ. Uh, and uh, Patrick Sanders, the uh, chief of the defence staff, is speaking at this uh, today. Now, this was covered in the Daily Telegraph, and uh, he was basically quoted as saying that the government will need to mobilise the nation in the event of war with Russia. Now, of course, the last time the government mobilized the nation was around COVID. Um, so are we going to see the same type of mobilization? Perhaps we will. Let's uh, have a look at what the Telegraph said, though. Uh, they said that uh, the army chief would not support conscription, uh, it's understood, but believes there should be a shift in the mindset of regular British people uh, where they think more like troops who are mentally prepared that war with Russia uh, could happen. Uh, so, Charles, uh, everybody uh, on social media is talking about conscription, uh, but the Telegraph saying that he's not talking about conscription, but we do need to change our minds about things. Yeah, it's a confusing picture, Mike. I agree. He, Saunders has been toing and froing on this since 2022, when he first suggested that people would have to step up and fill the void and that war with Russia was imminent. And of course, having commissioned during the Cold War in the mid 80s into the Green Jackets, thinking of things in these terms will be sort of a second nature to him. Yes, indeed. Well, look, uh, let's have a look and see what Tobias Elwood had to say about this this morning. He was speaking to Sky News. Uh, have a look at this. Life has gone well. It's now going to get more difficult as authoritarian states exploit our timidity, our perhaps reluctance to really put fires out. And the best example of that is uh, a democracy on the, on the uh, corner of Eastern Europe that in its third year is now uh, in conflict and we've not resolved that. So Patrick Saunders is saying, prepare for what's coming over the horizon. There is a 1939 feel to the world right now. These authoritarian states are rearming. Uh, there's a risk averseness about uh, the West in wanting to deal with that. And institutions, global institutions such as the United Nations um, aren't able to uh, hold these errant nations to account. In fact, the UN, I'd go further, is reaching its League of Nations moment unless it's reformed. So we're getting the full gamut here. We, we need to rearm. Uh, that's basically what he went on to say. We've got to reform the United Nations. This is a drum that the UK government's been banging for many, many years now. Uh, but of course, we've got to remember that uh, while we're busy mobilising for war, uh, that Tobias Elwood is still a serving, well, a reservist, sorry, for 77 Brigade, uh, and therefore a propagandist. Uh, but anyway, of course, 
what we're seeing here is a narrative in this country that we've seen in many other countries. We were talking about this uh, on last Friday's uh, news program. Uh, and we mentioned the fact that in Sweden, there was quite a reaction uh, to this comment from Carl Oscar Bolin, uh, the Swedish Ministry of Civil Defense, uh, saying that it's time for the country to prepare for war. This is the message that's absolutely being uh, pursued in the UK as well. And so the question is, why? Well, let's just remember that in 2018, uh, Theresa May headed off to the G7 meeting uh, in June that year and launched what she described as the rapid response mechanism. And this is the idea of a common narrative across all the G7 countries uh, and that there's no dissension from that common narrative. We're seeing that common narrative uh, very much at the moment. Now, in the, the recent symposium in Gaza that we held, uh, we, uh, we had uh, Kevin Ryan speaking. He was talking about identifying structural deep events and state crimes against democracy in real time. Uh, and one of the things that he said in that was that you can identify structural deep events if you start seeing the same narrative uh, right across governments and right across countries. We're absolutely seeing that in this case. Uh, and uh, so is the question of war with Russia a structural deep event? I leave people to think about that. But remember, this is not something which is uh, a recent development. This has been going on. This has been building up, particularly in the United Kingdom, for many, many years. Uh, do have a look at the Integrity Initiative section of the UK Column website if you want to get an idea of how this propaganda, this anti-Russian propaganda, has been building uh, for such a long time now. But not just Integrity Initiative, the Skripal affair being another example of it. Uh, so do uh, read the Day of the Skripal and other information on the UK Column about Sergei Skripal. Of course, we still don't know where Sergei Skripal and his daughter are. They disappeared and uh, will have never been seen since. Um, so the next question then is, if we're mobilizing uh, on a national basis, and I've said already, it, what would that look like? Or I've asked, what would that look like? Would it look like COVID? Let's just remember what happened during COVID uh, with the Coronavirus Act, emergency powers put in place. And if that's what happens uh, for a peacetime so-called pandemic, the question is, what happens when the uh, country moves onto a war footing, um, not just the, uh, emergency legislation like Coronavirus Act. But what happens when uh, we move on to a war footing with respect to censorship and the ability to, to uh, um, provide opposition narratives to the war footing? Uh, and then on the issue of uh, conscription itself, while that is apparently not on the table, at least as far as Patrick Sanders is concerned, uh, we should not forget uh, what the situation is in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, with respect to people being forcibly removed from the streets in order to be uh, joined, uh, forcibly to join the military uh, and to take part in that conflict over there. So um, I don't know, Vanessa, if you've got any thoughts on this. I mean, this whole narrative seems like a, a psychological operation to me. Yeah, it does. I don't think it should detract from the, the very real escalation that's going on, particularly in the region where I am. But it does seem like a massive psyop. I mean, we talked about it yesterday, whether it is to gauge public opinion, whether it is to create an atmosphere of fear as it did in uh, Sweden. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, definitely it's, something sinister going on. Yeah, it stinks. Uh, uh, mm. Charles, have, have you got any thoughts? 
I think there's just such mixed messages. This, this this sort of rhetoric is coming out at the same time as discussions around reductions in overall troop numbers and a sort of further reliance on the reserve. I think one thing that doesn't get mentioned nearly enough is the complete chaos caused by Capita, who've taken over recruitment for the armed forces, just been a total disaster for years now. And another thing I think would be worth looking further into is the ability of people in that age bracket to actually do the job that's supposed to be required. And I'm talking about physical fitness, physical robustness, and just an aptitude for it. And it doesn't seem to be clear whether there is actually the manpower there capable to do what certainly people like Patrick Sanders are talking about. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Now let's uh, let's move on to more military stuff here and uh, the question of accountability, Charles. Yeah, we go to the United States for this one. And Lieutenant Colonel Brad Miller, who's a retired US Army serviceman, sent a tweet on New Year's Day in which he introduced the Declaration of Military Accountability. He wrote in his tweet that senior military leaders received an email with a letter attached called the Declaration of Military Accountability. The letter is not addressed to the military leaders, but rather to the American people. The email was merely to inform these military leaders that there is a group of troops and vets pledging to the American public that we will do everything lawfully within our power to stop the willful destruction of our military by its own leadership. Now, there are 231 signatories to this declaration and a petition has been started, which has got well over 20,000 signatures on it. So the tweet also had the declaration itself attached, which begins with a quote from John Adams. Our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And then he goes on, or at least the the declaration goes on. In the course of human events, it sometimes becomes necessary to admonish the lawless, encourage the faint-hearted and strengthen the weak. We have reached just such a time in our history. The affairs of our nation are now steeped in avaricious corruption, and our once stalwart institutions, including the Department of Defence, are failing to fulfil the moral obligations upon which they were founded. Standing upon our natural and constitutional rights, we hereby apprise the American people that we have exhausted all internal efforts to rectify recent criminal activity within the armed forces. Now, although Miller didn't write the entire declaration himself, what he and the others are talking about is the way in which the the uh, rollout of COVID vaccines and indeed mandates were handled. And he further goes on to write, or at least the declaration goes on to state that while implementing the COVID-19 vaccine mandate, military leaders broke the law, trampled constitutional rights, denied informed consent, permitted unwilling medical experimentation, and suppressed the free exercise of religion. Service members and families were significantly harmed by these actions. Their physical suffering continues to be felt financially, emotionally, and physically. Some service members became part of our ever-growing veteran homeless population, and some even lost their lives. In an apparent attempt to avoid accountability, military leaders are continuing to ignore our communications regarding these injuries and the laws that were broken. So, what they intend to do is to put people in office who are able to take this on head on. And the the document closes out with the text, we promise to exhaust all moral, ethical and legal means to restore the rule of law, 
and will begin by attempting to hold senior military leaders accountable. The Constitution is the supreme law of our land. We will fight to enforce that law and put an end to the two-tiered justice system. May future generations see our efforts and, God willing, may they also be the recipients of the great gift of liberty that we have had the honour of safeguarding. So it's well-informed, well-written, punchy stuff, and it has gained traction in the sort of commentaries, as it were, and the Brownstone Institute has published a piece by Kate, uh, sorry, Gwendolyn Cull, um, entitled Who Will Deliver Justice to Our Service Members? I should pause here to just mention that um, the founder of the Brownstone Institute, Geoffrey Tucker, was interviewed by UK Column last year, an interview titled Geoffrey Tucker and the Brownstone Institute. So please do go and look that up. But uh, Gwendolyn Cull's piece begins with, while Pfizer and Moderna were testing rats in their labs, our government had their own guinea pigs lining up for the largest biomedical experiment the world has ever seen. Except these were not test animals. These were our United States service members, our men and women in uniform. And the test was not for general health, military readiness or preparedness. Rather, it was a social and pharmaceutical experiment that has severely hampered the readiness of our military and weakened trust in the once formidable institution. So we have to consider that although the picture is different in the United States in the way that mandates were introduced, the United Kingdom has a similarity in that the, the United Kingdom armed forces were in effect put under tremendous pressure to have such an injection. And a freedom of information request from 2021 illustrates the numbers concerned. A question was asked, uh, the number of people who've chosen not to receive one or more vaccines and indeed how this affects their medical deployability standard, MDS. Um, unusually, the response was uh, frank and full. 881 regular armed forces personnel have a read code for declining a COVID-19 vaccination. And then the next point is quite important. The, the COVID vaccination is not treated as an occupational vaccine. Thus, there is no change to an individual's medical deployment standard. However, some countries require full or partial COVID-19 vaccination as a condition of entry. This may affect individuals' eligibility to, to deploy to certain areas. This is managed by individuals' chain of command. So in effect, what we see is them skirting around the issue and rather than saying that they have a mandate in place to put the onus on the uh, requirements for a country that, that a member of the armed forces might be going into. The other thing worth noting is the lack of medical confidentiality and the chain of command, of course, is fully aware as to whether or not somebody has had a vaccination. Um, just to recap, we'll have a look at the numbers since numbers are so critical at the moment. We'll just have a quick look at how the uh, the COVID support force worked with what was called the, well, sorry, the, the COVID support force, the MOD's contribution. And this involved 34,000 servicemen and women to be deployed during that period since the 18th of March 2020, broken down in numbers. Uh, the, there were 5,300 deployed supporting testing, there were another 950 involved constructing the Nightingale hospitals, which of course were never even used, more than 300 in the ambulance services, and 500 uh, distributing PPE across the country. So there was an enormous commitment to it. Um, and really, we have to look at, um, first of all, the politicisation, but also what exactly is the army's position on vaccination in any case? We look at Queen's regulations from 
1975 and under health protection with a commanding officer's responsibility, we see that vaccination against communicable disease is subject to individual voluntary informed consent. All members of the unit are to be strongly encouraged to receive recommended vaccinations and are to be made available to do so. But looking further down the track and indeed further down the regulations, we see in Annex H to Chapter 5, Section 13 states that every case of skin grafting or vaccination with experimental vaccine in which the soldier under the supervision of the regulated medical authority acts as a donor of blood and so on, uh, these entries are to be made in red ink right across the sheet, which seems like a quite extraordinary measure to take in such an instance. But it does give an idea, should further experimental vaccines come down the track, what might be happening to members of the armed forces. And bear in mind, this course was written in 1975. Um, again, you thinking of the armed forces being used as a, as a tool of the narrative, it's worth talking about forthcoming uh, veterans ID cards, which after being announced in 2019, are finally being released, but only after they've had a successful assessment from the Central Digital and Data Office, making it look very much like they were held up until the, the situation could be digitised. Um, and I will just close out by referring back to last week, we spoke about um, laser capabilities and what the United Kingdom might have and what Russia might have. We spoke about the Dragonfire laser power, which is on screen now. And it's just worth noting that there was a government update just after the UK Column News last week, which reports that the military laser could boost the armed forces with greater accuracy. Uh, and they've brought a few sort of bullets out of that presentation, saying that the precision means that they'd be able to hit a one pound coin from a, from a kilometre away. They can engage targets at the speed of light, uh, which, of course, suggests that had the Russians anything comparable, then the drones that are being manufactured for Ukraine stand very little chance. Um, and also keen to put across the environmental credentials. Firing it for 10 seconds is the cost equivalent of using a regular heater for just an hour. So the cost of operating the laser is typically less than £10 per shot. Um, that's the sort of wrap up on the military accountability bit. But I think the key takeaway is, um, is exactly what might be in the pipeline for the United Kingdom Armed Forces, exactly like Mike stresses, with the coronavirus regulations or restrictions as they were and the employment of the armed forces, what exactly might lie ahead? Okay, thank you for that, Charles. Now, uh, uh, just to close this section off then, I want to bring uh, James uh, Karaoke on screen. He's uh, the UK's Deputy Permanent Representative of the United Nations. Uh, and he was uh, giving a presentation yesterday uh, about Ukraine. And uh, he said that, colleagues, two years ago, Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. This war benefits no one, not Russians and certainly not Ukrainians. And really, I was just wondering, well, who does it benefit, actually? And uh, the question is, all this narrative that we were talking about at the beginning of the programme, uh, who does that benefit? Uh, well, let's just uh, let's just have a look because here is a graph. Uh, we'll see the graph now as it builds. Uh, this is the uh, defence and aerospace uh, all share uh, measure for the FTSE uh, and uh, for this, of course the London Stock Exchange. Uh, and as we can see, uh, we can see very well that the defence and aerospace industries are benefiting very well from it. So in the last twelve months. Uh, alone, 69.72% increase in the value of defence and aerospace shares. And actually, if we go back to uh, 
late 2020. Uh, since then, it looks like around about a 300% increase since then. So uh, I think uh, the defense industry doing very, very well. Thank you very much. Uh, and certainly someone is benefiting. Uh, Vanessa, let's come on to you. Uh, welcome to the program. Uh, give us uh, an update on uh, Palestine. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, there's so much going on in the region at the moment. So I'm just trying to uh, zone in on a few very significant uh, happenings. First of all, inside Gaza itself. So I pulled up the map showing in the south, which is supposed to be the, the safe area that people have been evacuated to from the north. Um, highlighting Khan Yunus in, in kind of the, the almost the central Gaza, and then Al Mawazi in the very south uh, on the coast. So um, even The Guardian three days ago was reporting that fears for the largest remaining hospital in Gaza as Israeli forces bombard Khan Yunus. And in fact, today reports are coming in. Um, of mass evacuations from Khan Yunus to Rafa to the most southerly point in Gaza. And the besieging, really, on multiple points of the entire city and of uh, one of the last remaining operating hospitals in the Gaza Strip itself, 35 originally, now only around five are still um, operational. And as the Israeli army moves, to the south, it appears to be taking out uh, basically all the hospitals as it goes. The next video is just a little report that came through yesterday from an actual medic in the NASA hospital. You do have to listen quite carefully because the sounds of the various uh, hospital machines are going on in the background, but it's quite a chilling report. Please roll the video. I am Dr. Mohammed Harara, one of the doctors who served at Shifa Hospital before being evacuated to the south and now working at the Masar Hospital. Israel tanks are everywhere and we are completely surrounded. The situation here are more than trouble. We have received 128 injuries and 56 martyrs. Since uh, this morning, 19% of the doctors left the hospital uh, fearing for their lives. And therefore, the remaining of uh, the doctor have to deal uh, with more than 10 cases at a time. Most of the cases are amputation. The situation here are miserable and the smell of this everywhere. I feel like a Shifa hospital scenario are repeating itself. We are on another level of danger. I mean, just horrifying because we know in Shifa hospital, of course, they ended up executing or sniping um, doctors and nurses and kidnapping um, even patients from the hospital itself. This is from Ocha yesterday, a grim update on Khan Yunus. A warehouse was hit, killing two people and cutting off access to humanitarian supplies and to critical water and sanitation equipment. Six people were killed in Khan Yunus training center. Another 14 were reportedly killed in the Al-Mawazi site. Heavy bombardment near a distribution center. This is where families go to receive aid. We, we reported on this last week also. No access to the Al Nasser Hospital where emergency medical teams are working 
while debris is literally falling on their heads. More evacuation orders have been issued, including to areas where Al-Amal and Al-Nasser hospitals are located. All this today and the day is not over yet. Now, the following is a report that was released by ITV yesterday, filmed by a Gaza-based cameraman for ITV. ITV have actually presented it as a war crime to the Israeli government that has not responded. Um, and this is in the area of Al-Mawazi that I showed on the map, if we can just roll this. Called Al-Mawazi, that the Israelis have been encouraging Gazan civilians to flee to. These makeshift homes have been vacated because the war is getting closer. The billowing smoke was evidence of the new Israeli offensive in Khan Yunus that has been forcing more families to evacuate and seek safety elsewhere. No place safety in Gaza. Everywhere you are going, you will find the Israeli uh, army. They are shoot us at home, any building, in the street, everywhere you are, they will give you a chance, sometimes, just for five minutes, sometimes, do not give you any chance to take your clothes, to take your children, to take your family, and to get out of the building. This is our life in Gaza, it's very difficult. These pictures were filmed by a cameraman working for ITV News in Gaza. As he moved forwards towards the combat zone, he noticed this group of men doing their utmost to appear non-threatening, trying to proceed with care. They wanted to reach two other family members and get them out of harm's way. The interview complete, our cameraman walked away. And then this happened. The interviewee had been shot and fatally wounded. You can see them place their flag on his chest. As he was carried away, the white flag was turning red. Um, as you asked me last week, Mike, whether this was um, an isolated case of the, the previous sniping that we showed, clearly not. Um, there is a rabbi, Avraham Zerbiv in Khan Yunus, who was filmed um, saying that there will be 10 plagues in this war as there were 10 plagues in Egypt before. And of course, all of those plagues will befall the Palestinians. So we can just show a few seconds um, of his speech while he's standing in front of Khan Yunus. <laughs> I mean, just extraordinary claims that all of this genocidal intent is a bond between them and their gods, because it certainly isn't any god that I've um, read about in my life. 
Um, the UN Secretary General, more than half a million people inside the Gaza Strip are struggling with catastrophic levels of food insecurity. And of course, for sure, this is going to bring about um, disease and death. A baby last night died purely from cold um, because there's very little shelter now uh, in the Gaza Strip itself. There are calls for humanitarian airdrops appeals to Jordan, Egypt, and Turkey, urging the airdrop of aid in response to Israel's policy of starvation in northern Gaza, which is now fully under siege, and even aid trucks that are getting in. When people go to try to, to recover some kind of food, they're being sniped at again. And of course, what does the US do? The US starts dictating who shall govern Gaza, um, as per usual, while of course always claiming that they don't interfere in, in the governance of other countries. So here is uh, U.S. State Department spokesperson John Kirby. We don't want to see Hamas in charge of Gaza anymore. They chose to violate the ceasefire that was in place, uh, and we certainly agree with our Israeli counterparts that whatever the future of post-conflict Gaza looks like, it can't include Hamas leaders. So what can I say, really? The, the situation in Palestine uh, continues to, to deepen and worsen. OK, thank you, Vanessa. OK, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, uh, please do so at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership very much needed uh, and appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, tomorrow at 1 p.m., uh, we mentioned that we were recording uh, the first of a new series of The Health Revolution with Clive DeCarl. We did that last week, uh, and that will go out tomorrow. We've done our best to answer as many questions as possible, but frankly, the response was uh, huge. And so we've probably not answered everybody's, but we did what we could. Um, and uh, just a, a final uh, point here then, uh, we received this uh, in via Facebook. Um, and uh, somebody complaining that uh, some uh, UK column supporters have been writing ukcolumn.org on various what are described as large pebbles on the beach. Uh, and uh, this is disgraceful. Uh, so uh, it must stop immediately. And we would encourage everybody to stop doing that uh, straight away. Uh, let's come back on to serious topics again, though. And uh, Vanessa, you are, of course, in Damascus. What has been going on there? Yeah, well, um, on Saturday, we had a, a massive explosion in central Damascus at around 9.30 a.m. in the morning, targeting um, Medze, which is, as I said, complete central Damascus, Western Villas, which is a high security area where you have UN offices, many embassies, including South Africa and Venezuela, um, where uh, five IRGC officials, Iranian Republican Guard officials, were killed um, in an attack on Damascus. A four-story building was completely destroyed. Um, and if we can just run the next bit of video, we can see um, the immediate aftermath. <laughs> Thank 
so, you know, real devastation in the central of Damascus, which of course is a violation of any kind of international law in direct response, I guess, to the Iranian retaliation for previous Israeli and US assassinations in Iraq and Israel. Um, and that was followed by a massive attack on Ain al-Assad airbase in Iraq. There were reported high numbers of American military personnel and contractors injured. Of course, the message put out by CENTCOM is that they were all suffering from traumatic brain injury, very similar to what we heard after the attack that, that followed the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani. That again was followed by um, three airstrikes, separate airstrikes by U.S. forces in Iraq, including on the Al-Qaim border against the PMU, the Popular Mobilization Forces, that have been responsible for fighting ISIS in Iraq for many years now. That again was followed by a statement from the Iraqi resistance, which is going to join Yemen in imposing a naval blockade against Israel. Where are they intending this blockade to be? This is quite interesting because um, in their statement, um, they announced that during the early hours of the 24th of January, the start of phase two of the Islamic resistance in Iraq's pro-Palestine operations, including enforcing a naval blockade on Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. So this is really going to start to escalate at a time when the criminal U.S. occupation is again blatantly targeting our security forces. We urge the Mujahideen of the Islamic resistance to begin the second phase of operations, which includes a blockade um, on Zionist maritime navigation in the Mediterranean and putting the entity's ports out of service. So this means, I guess, an increase on the targeting of Israeli ports. The Iraqi government has previously demanded that the US Army respect the country's sovereignty. Um, and the prime minister has stressed that the PMU is an integral part of the country's armed forces, which of course it is. Um, an umbrella group of armed factions that includes members of the PMU has conducted about 150 attacks on US bases in Iraq and Syria over the past several months since uh, the 7th of October. So I just wanted to very quickly mention that also in Syria, if we can show the map of Syria, um, we have also been experiencing uh, increased and, and very intensive ISIS attacks, which are coming from um, the U.S. base at Al Tanif. On the hydrocarbon and uh, oil um, resources to the east of Homs, and this has been ongoing also since the 7th of October, we had a concerted attack, I think, last night, which is now being repelled by the Syrian Arab army. But I just wanted to point out this, this suggestion that they're now going to, to um, target, I guess, Zionist boats heading to Israel in the Mediterranean. Now, Iraq is landlocked, so I presume that they're going to be using Syria, Syrian uh, airspace to either send drones or missiles just to give an idea, I mean, from Sinjar to Latakia on the Syrian coast there, the Mediterranean coast, it's 750 kilometers. So this also gives an idea of the range of ballistic missiles they have available and are now ready to use against Zionist shipping, very similar to um, the Yemeni operation. Okay, Vanessa, thank you for that. Uh, now, let's uh, come back to, well, 
let's move on to the subject of farming. And uh, well, we're going to start off with a little bit of video from the World Economic Forum. This is uh, uh, Jojo Meta. Uh, and uh, well, just have a listen to this. Since we have to accelerate action and ambition from all sides, not only business, governments as well. And I think also like there's a lot of individual change that we have to promote uh, to just uh, really get where we need to get. So you work on a very new concept called ecocide. So many people don't understand what this legal definition is and what does it bring. So can you please explain a little bit to us, but also tell us in your opinion, uh, what has to change in current business and investment models to make sure this long-term thinking and ecological considerations are included in decisions and practices? Absolutely. So, I mean, ecocide as a word is becoming more, it's becoming better known around the world. And the concept is generally mass damage and destruction of nature. Um, but legally speaking, um, what our organization and other collaborators aim to do is to have this recognized legally as a serious crime. Because one of the issues that sort of pervades all of this discussion is that we have a kind of cultural, very ingrained habit of not taking damage to nature as seriously as we take damage to people and property. Um, and that, I mean, you know, if you're campaigning for human rights, at least you know mass murder, torture, all of these things are serious crimes. But there's no equivalent in the environmental space. Um, and so, and, and you know, unlike a, an international crime like genocide that in, involves a specific intent, with ecocide, what we see is actually what people are trying to do, what businesses are trying to do is make money, is, you know, is farm, is fish, is do all of these things that are, um, you know, producing energy and so on um, as well. But what's it, what's missing is the awareness and the conscience around the side effects, around the collateral damage that happens with that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all talking a little bit as though, you know, the, change that, the changes that are happening and the shocks that are happening are inevitable. But actually, there are quite simple, um, for example, you know, with ecocide, it's a really straightforward kind of intervention um, at the legal level that could actually start. So, um, Charles, maybe I could just ask you, first of all, you're a farmer. Um, do you consider you're committing ecocide when you farm? No, I'm not entirely sure where she's going with that, to be perfectly honest. It's like a lot of stuff that comes out of that forum. It's There's a lot of words with very little meaning. Um, but uh, I, I, she... And perhaps she does go on to substantiate it. I think I, I think I know what she's trying to say. And... To an extent, she has she has the kernel of a point, but not in the manner in which she imagines, I think. And um, a lot of the activities conducted by governments could be perhaps labelled as ecocide, whatever exactly she thinks she means by it. But I think her agenda is, um, is a very different one. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to hear how she was countered, if at all, on that panel. Uh, well, indeed. So uh, let's just consider this. So she obviously thinks that this image is ecocide. Uh, but my question is, does she consider that this image is ecocide? Now, Charles was talking about this uh, last week, uh, particularly with respect to the fact that uh, the fire service uh, is concerned that the no risk assessments have been done about the uh, fire risk from these types of uh, large battery storage installations in the UK. Now, of course, why are these being installed? They're being installed because uh, we are increasingly using uh, wind turbines and solar power 
uh, which is intermittent energy. Solar obviously only works during the day. It doesn't work very well if it's particularly cloudy and so on. Uh, and so uh, energy generation becomes increasingly intermittent. And so governments are looking for ways uh, to store energy when energy is produced so that it can be used when it isn't being produced. Uh, but if we look at the, put this back on screen again and consider that this installation is for 100 megawatts. I think the one that Charles was talking about last week was, was a bit more than that. I think it was 250 megawatts. But nonetheless, uh, you know, we, we would need a couple of thousand of these uh, in order to uh, make up the requirement for the, the national grid. Um, and uh, so, you know, are we prepared to have these dotted around the landscape and that's at, at that kind of scale? And is that an active ecocide as far as he's concerned? And how does that fit in with the net zero uh, policy. I wonder whether half of this stuff has been thought through, actually. But in the meantime, sticking back, getting back onto farming itself, uh, of course, the uh, protests in Europe over net zero policy and Agenda 2030 continue. Uh, this is Poland uh, and this uh, particular report saying that in Renica, uh, they are going to be protesting the policy of the uh, farming policy of the European Union. Uh, the demonstration will play, take place in, in other places as well, but in fact, right across Poland today. So uh, here's the map showing uh, the various uh, locations where there are protests going on, not just in Poland, of course, this originated in, in Netherlands. It moved on to Germany. It's been going on in France for a very long time. So just let's just have a look at what's going on in France at the moment, because it is quite incredible. Uh, French farmers do things in their own particular way, and maybe Vanessa will have something to say about this in a second. But they like spreading uh, manure around the place, shall we call it. Uh, and so public buildings absolutely getting lots of manure, uh, quite incredible what's going on, but also the railway lines, as we'll see in a second. Uh, so they are determined to shut down transport links, to shut down uh, civil uh, municipal uh, buildings and so on in this way. Uh, and in the meantime, in Ireland, the farmers getting together, they have set up an organization called the Farmers Alliance. Uh, and this is now turning itself into a political party. So they're attempting to uh, get involved in the politics of it uh, as well. So farmers beginning to, to move forward with this stuff. Uh, but then we have this, uh, because of course, many people saying, well, how do we uh, create our own food supplies and so on? Uh, well, the University of Michigan has basically now uh, produced a report telling us that we can't uh, because apparently food from urban agriculture has a carbon footprint six times larger uh, than conventional produce, according to their study. Uh, and so they're saying that uh, on average, food produced through urban agriculture emitted 0.42 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalents per serving, six times higher than the 0.07 kilograms of CO2 equivalent. Uh, so per serving for conventional grown produce. And the uh, quote from this is that by assessing actual inputs and outputs on urban agricultural sites, we were able to assign climate change impacts on each serving of produce. Uh, and uh, so there you go. Charles, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on what I've just uh, reported. I suppose one has to wonder what the carbon output is from the production of such articles, of which there seems to be a complete profusion at the moment. But uh, no, I, I don't think that's really something one can take particularly seriously. Yeah, indeed. But so anyway, uh, let's move on then. Uh, and the Bank of England and uh, currency, Charles. 
Yes, currency, and I think widening cracks in the central bank digital currency narrative. Uh, I'm beginning to talk about this because yesterday the Bank of England published, or rather updated, one of their statistical notices, um, 2024 01, which says that at present neither the general notes and definitions nor the classification of accounts guide provide any guidance on the statistical reporting of crypto assets. Now, that might sound frightfully mundane, but the reason for highlighting it is that it specifically refers now to issued by a monetary authority, brackets, i.e. a central bank digital currency. Admittedly, under the guidance note, they still list this as cash, but nonetheless significant that uh, CBDC has now worked its way into the fabric of the Bank of England statistical guidance, even though it is as yet theoretical in this country. Now, which way is the wind blowing? And to go to uh, a a well thought of publication for some sort of comment and uh, analysis, I will look at the uh, the Cato Institute. And they have an article at the moment, uh, published last month by Nicholas Anthony, global policymakers are still pushing CBDCs despite their failures. And he says, in November alone, officials from the International Monetary Fund, Bretton Woods Committee and Bank for International Settlements issued rallying calls for governments to push forward on CBDCs with courage and determination. But rather than double down on a bad idea and waste further resources in this pursuit, policymakers should let this idea go and focus on more fundamental reforms that would create a freer financial system. I think he's giving them the benefit of the doubt there. But what we should do is just to have a quick look at uh, where in the world these things are being considered and indeed whether this is in spite of their circumstances or because of them. So I think relevant that in Ukraine they are putting forward the suggestion that there'll be an e-grievener coming delivered by the National Bank of Ukraine. Israel indeed is suggesting the digital shekel. So There doesn't seem to be any barrier, as it were, to countries suggesting that this would be a reasonable outcome for their citizens, or indeed there are circumstances which seem to accelerate this. But what we should really do is take a look at uh, the, um, sorry, just take a look at um, where in the world these are being used and to what effect. So we go to Jamaica, where the Bank of Jamaica have issued the what they call the Jam Dex, and the way that they're trying to sell this on a retail basis, and of course it's retail that's critical because that's where the the, the people are in effect captured. But the the lines they're using is that it's it's going to be safe, it's going to be secure with a picture of a lock there, it's going to be convenient. So you can link it up to your smartwatch. And then if that doesn't uh, advertise it well enough, they then say that for businesses, the first 10,000 eligible businesses will receive a one-off government payment of 25,000 Jamaican dollars in in digital format, of course. Uh, And for the individual from April the 1st, 2023, you'll you'll pay, or rather you'll be paid up to 2% back on purchases that you make. So... The, the thing is that what they do is that they very much ignore uh, how the money is provided to the individual. It's all very well the central bank saying that they hold the digital currency, but of course that doesn't deal with the, the interface between the bank and the customer, and that's done by a third-party provider of a wallet. And in Jamaica, 
they've used, they've partnered with JN Bank. So JN Bank, one would hope, would be an organization with a blemishless record of security. Not so, unfortunately. On the morning of Saturday, March the 14th, 2020, the Jamaica National Group experienced a data security breach as a result of a cyber attack on our systems through ransomware. On investigation, we discovered that there was unauthorized access to our system, which has impacted our ability to operate as usual. Now, although that might be a a standalone example and, and certainly can't be used to rubbish the entire system outright, there are these concerns around the safety and that there's absolutely no guarantee at all that anybody's able to produce a system, particularly in the wallet capacity, that will be secure. Uh, Nigeria is another country that's had um, that's had a digital currency functioning for some time, the e-Naira. And another issue is, of course, the programmability and indeed the restrictions on it. So they have a, a, a variety of categories, bronze, silver, gold and platinum. And I should just draw your attention to the fact that the bronze wallet allows a daily withdrawal of 44 pence, whilst the platinum wallet, the, the top flight capability has a wallet cap of just £4,368. So suggestions that uh, that a digital currency can be controlled but sort of down to the last penny are, are indeed well warranted. Um, then the other thing, of course, that, that hadn't really been thought about at all, and it's not directly related to, to central bank digital currencies, but it, it does illustrate why central banks want to be able to control the whole of the crypto sphere is the realization that sanctions, or at least organizations, individuals, or countries that are sanctioned against, in effect, can mitigate this by uh, the use of cryptocurrency. So what can be done, says the US Government Accountability Office, digital assets have characteristics that make them attractive to those looking to avoid sanctions. For example, they enable users to rapidly transfer value across borders and provide a level of anonymity. However, they also have limitations. For instance, federal agencies and private sector actors may be able to trace transactions and those making them on public blockchains. Federal agencies that monitor illegal financial activities, such as the Departments of Justice and Treasury, have taken action to address the risks posed by digital assets. For example, the Department of Justice charged five Russian and two Venezuelan nationals for using cryptocurrency to evade sanctions related to obtaining Venezuelan oil and US military technology. Now, um, in the United Kingdom, the situation has been under review in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And the most recent summary from, sorry, just back one, the House of Commons Treasury Committee asks a very good question, which is, is the digital pound still a solution in search of a problem? Now, we're quite familiar with solutions in search of problems over the last few years, and certainly not just restricted to economic affairs. But the the um, conclusion of this committee is that um, we have yet to hear a convincing case for why the UK needs a retail CBDC. Whilst a CBDC may provide some advantages, it could present a sig- significant challenges for financial stability and the protection of uh, privacy. So they do deal with some of the issues, but not all of them. And as I say, I return to 
the sort of dual vulnerabilities, first of all, on the cybersecurity hacking front, and nobody has provided any sort of evidence to suggest that this would not be an ongoing concern, but also the vulnerabilities of the tech platforms themselves to outages of some sort, and of course, complete chaos emanating um, from such a thing. So there does seem to be an element of pushback from, again, within the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority is pushing for cash to have a sort of enhanced status. They set out new rules to maintain access to cash in an increasingly digital world. This is from last month. Um, They've proposed new rules to maintain reasonable access to cash for personal and business customers. Follows new powers granted to the FCA by the Financial Services and Markets Act 2023. And again, just to look on the positive side, the payment survey from last year, the British Retail Consortium, shows that um, cash use has increased from 15% to just under 19% of transactions. So we'll just have a look at how that works. The graph on screen now shows the downwards line, the the black or dark blue line running across the centre of the graph has gone down quite sharply, but then represented is, is a sort of an uptick in the last year or so. Now, we'll wait, obviously, for more data to come out on that. But um, to further quantify it, whilst there is a massive change over the last decade, the percentage of cash transactions has dropped from 52% now to 18.76%. But that is a significant increase from 2021. And also, of course, we have to factor in inflation, but the average transaction value is now up at £15.37. So I think how I'd like to close this out is just by saying that um, you know, sustained pressure and campaigning on these sorts of issues does actually reap benefits. And the campaign to keep cash and the pushback on CBDC can really be seen to be working in this regard. And the other thing to consider with both the, the examples I gave of where it is in existence, Jamaica and Nigeria, is that another factor is, of course, the, the uptake of the currency itself, which has been absolutely pitiful. Nigeria probably outstrips Jamaica, but they reckon that there's only a 6% uptake. So these things are worth fighting against and, um, and ground can be made. Okay, thank you, Charles. Now, I uh, just want to uh, lighten things up a little bit before we move back to the Middle East. And, and uh, here we have a great piece of news because the UK government has decided to launch a WhatsApp channel. Uh, it's available now if you want to go and get prop- be propagandized by them. Uh, at the moment, they're selling uh, on-sale tickets for the railway. So you get your discount for the railways if you want to click the link uh, that you can see on screen. Let's have a look and see what the uh, Alex Burgard uh, said about this. We are always looking for new ways to communicate with the public. We hope our new and entirely opt-in WhatsApp channel will be a useful way of providing people with updates from the government. So I just thought we'd look at what type of updates you might expect from this. Uh, So from yesterday, followers of the UK government WhatsApp channel will be notified that they can get discounted rail tickets from the Great British Rail Sale. Examples of other UK government channel posts include reiterating public health advice, like announcing winter winter flu jabs, uh, and declining reminders like self sorry, try again, deadline reminders like self-assessment tax return deadlines. So if you want to be propagandized by the British government, head off to uh, WhatsApp and you can uh, get that done there. Uh, Vanessa, let's come back to you uh, then. And uh, uh, another person speaking out uh, on what's going on in Israel. 
Yeah, this was somebody I discovered really in the last um, couple of weeks on Twitter, Alon Mizrahi. Now, Mizrahi, uh, people probably know, are the original kind of Middle Eastern Jews that are equally or almost equally discriminated against as uh, the Palestinians. Um, so he describes himself as an Israeli author, blogger, public speaker. Um, and he put out a tweet, I think it was last week, that I found incredibly moving. I recommend people follow him. They go and check out his blog. Very um, eloquent speaker, very good author. Um, and so this is the tweet that he put out, or rather part of it. He says that he grew up in a very Zionist place and time, but I was lucky enough to grow among Mizrahi, Arab Jews. Both my father and my beloved uncle spoke Arabic as their first language. And the two childhood friends marries two sisters, my mom and aunt, I think that means, born in Morocco to Jewish parents. Arab childhood, and from a young age, I knew the names and would recognize the voices of legends such as Farid Al-Atrash, uh, I won't read all the names out, and Fairuz, of course, and others. My father would also take me with him to work occasionally. He was an aluminium worker in construction and his teammates. Isa, an Arab from Nazareth, was almost a family uh, friend. We all knew him, we loved him, and welcomed him whenever we would meet. Um, and he goes on to say, Israel, just like American or English, connotes whiteness. And white, we Mizrahi Jews are not, nor will we ever be. Unlike many Mizrahi Jews, I refuse to become an empty shell filled only with the ideological content of the state. A de-Arabized Arab Jew, that I wouldn't be. I chose to be free instead. When I heard of the way Noor's grandfather Khaled called her and how similar it was to the way I call my daughter, and when I see the suffering, wounds, burns, pain, and death of Gaza's children, the memory and consciousness of me and my roots, both known and simply genetic, springs to life immediately, undeniable and bare. These kids are not foreign or alien to me. They are me and mine too. I feel their pain and fear. I understand the terms of endearment and the farewells of their grief-stricken parents, even as I really understand but a few words here and there. My soul understands Arabic is the way I put it. I think what, the, what this is for me, it's very uplifting. It shows that, one, what the world was like before the Zionist project changed Palestine into what it's become. Um, an occupied state living under an oppressive apartheid regime. Um, and it also shows that there is some hope that there are those within the Zionist or, or that have had the Zionist indoctrination forced upon them that are waking up and are realizing that there is another way. So I just actually wanted to bring a little bit of an uplifting statement for a change. Okay. Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Uh, now, something that I should have had in the uh, ad segment in the middle of the program, and apologies to Richard D. Hall for this, but Richard D. Hall's court case begins on Monday at 2 p.m. Uh, now, uh, there are seats in the public gallery for this, uh, but there, it's limited, of course, it's first come, first serve basis, but uh, I would suggest that it would be great if as many people as possible uh, could go there to support Richard D. Hall. Now, of course, he's being prosecuted because of uh, his coverage of the Manchester bomb, uh, arena bombing uh, and and so on. So um, do get along to that on Monday if you possibly can. 
Um, let's uh, end with uh, some light, well, relatively lighthearted stuff. Uh, this was being tweeted out, I'll admit, by the Russians earlier today, but I take the point here, bearing in mind how we started uh, the program uh, and, and what we were talking about on Friday's program with this uh, massive um, uh, NATO exercises going on at the, at the minute. Uh, but we have uh, uh, people from NATO shouting over the border to Russia, don't worry. It's just just a drill while they're being uh, having all their weapons pointed in that direction. I, I think that uh, sums things up as they are pretty well at the moment. Uh, the question is, what can we do about it? Well, we should do something about it. And I've been seeing this uh, doing the rounds at the moment. Uh, and the quote on screen here is, but what can I do? I'm just one person, said 7 billion people. And I think that uh, really is the point. It's time for us to... Uh, set aside our differences uh, and uh, get on with resisting what is going on here at the moment because uh, we're looking at a war narrative and this, even if it's uh, just noise at this point in time, these types of things, uh, mistakes can happen uh, and uh, really this is not the direction we should be going in. So anyway, we'll leave it there for today. I'm going to say thank you very much to Charles and Vanessa. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for some extra. Don't forget the... Uh, Health Revolution at 1 p.m. tomorrow, uh, and then we'll be back for the news on at 1 p.m. on Friday as usual. See you then. Bye bye.